0: I invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them with you today, and turn to the book of Daniel chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 27. Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. As we begin, let's ask now for the Lord's guidance and help as we open his word. Father, as we come to you this morning, we come to you in need of hearing from you. And Lord, as we open your word, that is indeed what we are confessing, acknowledging. God, would you speak to us through this inspired word, through these words that you gave to Daniel so long ago in an answer to a prayer that he prayed? So Lord, now would you give us understanding and would you give us strength to not only know it, but to seek to live in light of it to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Significant events build our anticipation. Think about that, especially for some of you who may have graduation on the near horizon. For many of you, there's a lot of excitement, looking ahead to the future, things to be looking forward to. Not just with graduation, there are many other examples in life, big life events that come along our way, whether it's marriage or the birth of a child, moving off to college or moving from college to whatever's next. Certainly there are things in life that build in us a sense of joyful, eager anticipation. Well, as we come to the book of Daniel... Chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. This is very much the posture of Daniel. He's just prayed, and we pick up on him still in prayer today. But he's praying in light of the future. He's read the book of Jeremiah. He knows that their time in exile that they've spent is coming to closure, And he, in light of that word through Jeremiah, is now anticipating the next step of being delivered from exile to go back to Jerusalem. He knows that that's coming soon, and he's praying in response to that word from Jeremiah with great anticipation and great hope. So let's pick up in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks or seventy sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall come or shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and its sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. As we come to this portion of Daniel, we've been making our way through the book of Daniel. If you're like the first time visiting today, we've been making our way through the book of Daniel chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That is often a pattern that we have here at Redeeming Grace. We want God's word to be prominent and speak. And so we wanna be very careful in understanding the Bible. And so we wanna make our way through long passages and chapters and even books of the Bible. And so we've been doing that for several weeks and months now, making our way through the book of Daniel. Last week, we looked at the first 19 verses of Daniel, which was a prayer. Daniel prayed this prayer in light of something he read in a letter, or in, in a, in a, in a uh, basically a letter from the prophet Jeremiah, a contemporary of his, so to speak. And he's now praying in verses 1 through 19. He's praying in anticipation of being He and the people of God who were in exile in Babylon being able to go back to the promised land. And so we come to verses 20 through 27 today to continue the the storyline, so to speak. And basically, you can divide chapter nine into two parts. Verses one through 19 are Daniel's prayer. Verses 20 through 27 is God's answer to Daniel's prayer. So we see a prayer prayed and an answer given. And we wanna look at the answer to the prayer specifically this morning as we turn our attention to this Passage. And really, when we come away from this, this passage, what we are being encouraged in is that we can trust God, even now in the present, because of what he's promised for the future. It's really what Daniel is receiving from the Lord, and he's being encouraged where he is as he anticipates God fulfilling his promises for their future, and so as we look at these verses, 20 through 27 today, I want us to look at two main, two main points, if you will. Really, we're gonna just see the expression of Daniel's hope and the fulfillment of Daniel's hope. The expression of hope, the fulfillment of hope. That's really where we're gonna kind of hang our, our understanding, the expression being in verses 23 23 and the fulfillment being in verses 24 through 27. This is where we are in trying to help outline where we are today as we come to this important passage of Scripture. Let's look, first of all, at the expression of hope. See that in verses 20 through 23. Verses 20 through 27 flow directly from a time of passionate pleading, prayer that Daniel prayed in verses one through 19. In fact, in verse 20, we see that Daniel is still praying. He says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, Gabriel comes. So imagine this, Daniel's praying. We see what he prayed from last week, verses one through 19. And all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel shows up, swift flight. There's Gabriel all of a sudden. Imagine praying and boom, this angel just darted towards you and said, here I am, I have an answer. That's pretty pretty incredible. This is exactly what happened there to Daniel. And if if you recall last week, this prayer that Daniel prays is a prayer of confession. He's confessing the sin of Israel in light of God's judgment upon them. So people of God were in the promised land because God had promised to give it to them, so they're there. They disobey. They become idolaters. God warns them through prophet after prophet after prophet. He's told them time and time again, you're going to be taken away from the land and delivered into the hands of an evil people if you do not repent. Do the people repent? No. So God takes them through Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Babylon comes and invades, takes the people of God to Babylon into captivity. And so, for some 60 some years now, Daniel and the people of Israel are living in Babylon in exile. And so, Daniel reads the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 25, we know the 70 years of captivity is, they're, they're warned about this. This is what's going to happen if you do not turn from your ways. You're going to go to exile for 70 years. Jeremiah uh, 25. Well, that's exactly what happens. And so in the midst of their exile, Jeremiah later writes them a letter. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 29, the letter that he sent to the exiles while in Babylon explaining that though you're now here, there's coming a time after these 70 years when God will take you back to the land. I want you to hear this again. We looked at it last week, but I think it's important for setting up the message again this week. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. After 70 years, God had promised they're taking them back. Then notice the next verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Little side note, it's always important to keep text in its context. It's a nice verse we like to slap on graduation cards. It just happens to be dealing with exiled uh, people of God. And so be careful when you want to rip out a nice sounding verse and want to apply it uh, in context. He's saying that to the people of God in exile as he's wanting to take them back into the promised land. So that's what he's meaning in verse 11. And he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. That's exactly what Daniel's doing in Daniel chapter nine. He's calling upon the Lord. He's praying. He's in praying with hope and confidence that God is going to do just as he had promised because God has plans for them to not do them evil, not do them harm, but to do them good. And so we see that that's exactly where we are now in the process of Daniel chapter nine. This prayer is in direct response to the verses we see in Jeremiah chapter 29. So we see that we come to understand that that Daniel is is praying in light of what he's read in the scriptures. He's motivated by God's word. He's motivated and prompted by his desire to see God fulfill his covenant commitment to his people. And he especially longs for the day when Jerusalem would be rebuilt and restored. And he even knew, based upon his reading probably of Jeremiah chapter 31, that that coming day would involve a new covenant God would make with his people, that the old covenant would be gone away. They would go away and there would be a new covenant that would be established there in Jeremiah chapter 31. So Daniel is praying in light of all of these things. God's promised to take us back. He's promised to make a new covenant with us. He's promised to do wonderful things and I'm praying in anticipation of that. That's exactly where we are now in Daniel chapter nine. And as Daniel prays, he's not even finished with the prayer before he receives the answer. In verses 22 through 23, when Gabriel shows up, we're told Daniel says, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. This is a great, great reminder for us. I think even an encouragement to us, this is a Holy Spirit inspired example of when God's people pray and God responding to the prayers of his people. It's a great thing to see an actual prayer and an answer to prayer, knowing, giving us confidence that when we pray, God hears us and God desires to indeed answer the prayers of his people. It ought to encourage us to seek him and to pray. I want you to notice several things about Daniel's prayer and God's response. Number one, I want you to notice about Daniel's posture. Daniel's posture. When you go back to the content of Daniel's prayer and you consider his approach, he was humble. This was a Humble prayer, wasn't it? You go back and read it. We looked at it last week. Stephen picked up on it as he prayed even this morning. He, he says in verse seven, "O Lord, to you belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame. You're good. You're holy. You're right. We're wrong. We're sinners. We failed. And so he's humble in his approach to God. Daniel knew that Israel had gotten exactly what they deserved. And he confessed not only their sin, but his own sin. You see that there in our text this morning, verse 20. Confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel. Presenting my plea before the Lord. I think it was Spurgeon that once said that we always pray best when we pray out of the depths. When the soul gets low enough, she gets a leverage, and then she can plead with God. And I think that's where Daniel was. He, was. he was in the depths. He was understanding exactly what got them where they were. He understood their failure. He understood that to them belonged open shame. They were the idolaters. They were the ones that had turned their back on the Lord. They were the one, the ones who had failed. And I think that that's how we too must seek the Lord. We must come to him in humble awareness of our own sin. We need to understand that God is right to bring judgment against sin because he is holy, he is good, and he is right to call us to account for our own disobedience. And friend, that should, that should spur us on to seek him and to seek especially his mercy. So Daniel's posture teaches us something. He was a humble man praying to a mighty God. But I want you to also notice his perseverance. Notice, notice what the text says. While I was speaking and praying, and he goes on, presenting my plea to the Lord. While I was speaking in prayer, Gabriel comes, whom I had seen in the vision at the first. He comes in swift flight. Notice when he comes. He says it was at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, before you want to jump ahead and get to verses 24 and 27, we're not going to know what that's saying. I just want you to pay attention here. Think about that for a minute. Daniel's acknowledging that he's praying. Gabriel comes to give him an answer. When? At the time of evening sacrifice. That's pretty significant. Where have they been for 60 some years? They've been in Babylon. There have been no evening sacrifices. There has been no temple. There has been no worship. But Daniel because of his commitment to God's word and His law, he was still on Jerusalem time, so to speak. He was still operating out of a out of a system that had been ingrained in him. He's, he's operating from, from a mindset that was in, that, that was just um, led by God's word. The time of evening sacrifice, if you read uh, Exodus chapter twenty nine, verses thirty eight through forty two, is a reference to a daily burnt offering offered about three p.m. in the afternoon. Well, that, They hadn't done that literally in some time, but he's still operating in that mode because of his commitment and his faithfulness to God's law. So even though he spent most of his life in a foreign land, probably Daniel went to Babylon when he's an older teenager, now 50, 60-some years later, he's still referring to, he's timing the day based upon evening sacrifices he's not offered in some time. Way back as a teenager in Jerusalem. So just think about that. I mean, I guess you could say it this way, that you could take the boy out of Jerusalem, but not the Jerusalem out of the boy, right? He remains faithful. He's persevering in the grace of God. Still referring even to time. That's just a little thing there, but I think it's an instructive thing. Still orders his day based upon the sacrificial system even though he had not participated or even seen that sacrificial system in many, many years. Then notice number three, Daniel's position. So Daniel's praying, but what we see here is one, I would say one of the most moving statements in the entire book of Daniel. Notice what Gabriel says. Gabriel comes, it's at the time of evening sacrifice. Verse 22, he made me understand Daniel's speaking here. Gabriel made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. Why? For you are greatly loved. The reason that you are going to receive the answer to your prayer, Daniel, is because you are, are greatly loved. God has set His affection upon you, Daniel. God loves you. He pursued relationship with you, and He wants to respond to your pleas for mercy. And what a reminder to Daniel of this covenant love referred back to in chapter nine, verse four. The Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. As these verses are quite instructive, oftentimes we feel unworthy and question even our own right and ability to pray, don't we? And there's one thing that we must remember that despite the whisperings of Satan, we must know that if we are in Christ, we are greatly loved and that God desires, and delights to hear and answer the prayers of his people. Notice this, this, this position that Daniel is in. He is praying as one who had been faithful, but at one who was loved, greatly loved, we're told. This is so helpful. How we approach God does matter. You notice that. Daniel's posture, he's humble. Daniel's perseverance, he's faithful. Daniel's position, he is greatly loved. How we approach God matters in how we pray. So Daniel's prayer was prayed, it was heard, it was answered, and it was all in the context of this covenant relationship that God had with him. So we see this expression of hope. Daniel is expressing himself in hope based upon what he had read in God's word. And then we come to the fulfillment of this hope in verses 24 through 27. So we see that the first, verse, the first 19 verses is Daniel's prayer. The verses 20 through 23 is God sending Gabriel to say, I'm going to answer that prayer. I'm going to give you insight and instruction and understanding because I love you. And then verses 24 through 27 is the answer to his prayer. Now, as we move into this final section of Daniel chapter nine, we are given the details of God's response to Daniel via Gabriel. And while it's clear in these verses that God indeed plans to take Israel back into the promised land, it remains difficult to know just how far into the future God is referring here. In fact, these verses in verses 24 through 27, these verses that were often referred to as the 70 weeks or the 77s, literally it's 77s, 70 weeks here, have been some of the most challenging verses in the entire Bible. Welcome to our gathering today. These are some of the most challenging, difficult verses that we have in all of Scripture. They're hard to understand because we know that Daniel was given understanding. Daniel was being given knowledge and insight here, but they're hard because... When you begin reading this, it's, it's hard to know exactly who these different people are and who, and what timing that, that, that's being unfolded for us here. In fact, it's led many faithful, Bible-believing people to arrive at a wide range of different conclusions. So if you were to take all these different commentaries, you're going to find that commentary after commentary after commentary, they have different slight versions of what they think is going on in this text and Bible-believing folks seeking to be faithful often, while arriving at different conclusions, often arrive at certain conclusions based upon elaborate systems of eschatology or end times, their, their end times perspective, what's gonna happen in the end. So that often is, is what's bringing the, the differing approaches to understanding this verse. But I appreciate what one of my preaching professors recently said. Uh, he said, based upon... Uh, he's talking about eschatology and end times. He says, we often miss the purpose of eschatology, study the end times. So we are not encouraged to be convinced of a system, but rather to be comforted by a promise. We are not encouraged to be convinced of a system, but to be comforted by a promise. So let me just give this word of pastoral advice. If you are bent to bring a system of eschatology to this passage, you are in danger of missing the glorious promise that's presented in this passage. Now, I'm going to walk through these verses in how I think that they're best to be interpreted. And I will also point out along the way we 're not going to spend a long time here but but I want to point out how others have taken certain things that and, and there are other possibilities to, to see these verses but regardless, I want you to understand that even though these verses are difficult the details of them can be often um, understood in different ways in significant diff, significantly different ways that regardless that the point God is communicating remains the same what one of the ways that you can summarize verses 24 through 27 in God's answer to Daniel's prayer is this. Daniel, I'm going to take your people back to the promised land just like I have promised, but I'm going to do so much more than that. That's basically a summary of verses 24 through 27. So when we get bogged down here in a minute in the details, just remember, this is what God is saying to Daniel. I'm taking my people back, but I'm going to do way more than you think. You're just thinking rebuilt temple back to Jerusalem, I'm gonna do more than that. I'm sending a a Messiah to come take care of sin once and for all. So it's as if Daniel's kind of be, you know, if if you were to stand and look at a a mountain range and you see a mountain, many times that mountain, it just looks like one mountain, doesn't it? But if you were to go to the top or, or get some elevation, you'd actually see that it's actually a range, a series of mountains, one after the other. So it's as if Daniel's kind of being taken now to the summit of this mountain. And as he gets to the summit, he realizes, oh, there's a bigger mountain. Jerusalem, we're going back. That's the mountain he's hoping for and seeing. But God is actually saying to him, there's a bigger mountain, Daniel. There's a greater hill that's coming. And I want you to see that, be instructed by it. So God's answer to Daniel's prayer is expressed in a decree from Gabriel. I want you to notice a couple things here. Number one, I want you to notice the goal of God's decree. Verse 24, I think verse 24 is central to understanding what we have here in these verses. In verse 24, we begin with the phrase 70, Seventy weeks or seventy sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy. Literally, that, the, the word place is, is, is often added because it, it literally is the most holy. Is it a place or it is someone? So it's the most holy, anoint a most Holy. I think it's first and foremost important that we see the overall work that God was going to do. And verse 24 beautifully captures this work. Yes, these weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. I'm concerned about your holy city, Jerusalem. But listen, I'm gonna do these other things. Transgression is going to be finished. I'm gonna put an end to sin. I'm going to atone for iniquity. I'm gonna bring in everlasting righteousness. Seal both vision and prophet, and anoint a most holy. Not only is God saying that he would physically restore them, but he was going to do far more than that. Friends, I don't know about you, but when you read verse 24, you can't help but immediately think about the ministry of Jesus. If we were to read the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse five and six, the whole chapter, there's just a couple of things that, that's mentioned in that, that chapter, that, that prophecy looking forward to the arrival, the coming of the Messiah. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Daniel is being told that there's, there's coming a time when God would end, put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. We also notice the ministry of Jesus would would inaugurate everlasting righteousness, that he would be the final word, thus sealing up the vision and prophets, and that he would anoint a most holy, that he would actually be the fulfillment of the temple. And so verse 24 is not just pointing to the rebuilding of a city, but the work of redemption that the Messiah would accomplish, and while we await the final and full consummation of that work when he comes again, it is clear that Jesus is the focus of this, this, this prophetic word that Daniel is receiving. And so Daniel is, is looking forward to this coming down. He's, he's anticipating the new covenant. He's anticipating God's promise to take them back to Israel. But, but, but God is saying, listen, I'm gonna do more than that. I'm actually going to atone for your sins. So Daniel is receiving this this message from God of what he was going to do. Now, some thousand years removed from that, for us, we have the benefit of being able to look back to see how God did that. That he did it through the sending of his son who would come into this world and to uh, Jesus, the one, the, the Messiah, the one that would come and live a life of perfect obedience and yet died a sinner's death upon the cross atoning for sin, bringing in to this world Inaugurating a kingdom of everlasting righteousness, fulfilling, sealing up the vision and prophets. So Daniel prays for God to return them in light of the promise that he had given them. And God answers and says, I will do that, but I'm going to do far more than that. And it will be, and it will be done in 77s. 70 weeks. So, we'll just see the goal of God's decree. The goal is that he's going to return them, and he's going to do far more than that. He's going to atone for sin by sending Messiah. What's the process? Well, we're told in verse 24 that it's going to be a process of 70 weeks, 77s. Now, it had almost been 70 years. So this word 70 and seven, these, these, these numbers matter. It had been 70 years of exile, and now the Lord says, in 77s, I'm going to do the following. What is the 77s or the 70 weeks? Well, that's one of the debated questions. I think it's helpful for us to look back at Leviticus chapter 25 through 26. Just know, by the way, that in the next 15 minutes, um, You're still going to have questions about this text, okay? Uh, But I think we'll get the gist of what's being said because there have been scholars for years trying to wrestle with these truths. But if we go back to Leviticus chapter 25 and 26, we're told there that when Israel settled the land originally, that they were to work the land for six years, but in the seventh year, the land was not to be worked, but rather a Sabbath year was to be observed. But, when, but then they were to also count seventy of those, or seven of those cycles. If you're up on math, you're gonna track with me. If you're not a math person, you're gonna be lost already, all right? But when, when, but, so later, so you have in Leviticus 25 and 26 that the, the, the Israelites were to work the land for six years and in the seventh year, there was to be a Sabbath rest. But then they're told that they were to count seven Sabbath cycles, which would bring them to 49 years. And on the 50th year, they were to consecrate it as a jubilee year in which the land and the people would gain freedom. It was a rest for the land. So many things happened. Slaves would be returned. uh, People's land would be returned. And basically a jubilee year, the 50th year, was to be a new start for everyone. You can read about that in Leviticus 25 and 26. And so it's likely that the jubilee is the backdrop for the 77s being referred to here in Daniel chapter nine. And if so, then the weeks, the 77s are weeks of years. Most agree that it's weeks of years making the 70 times seven equal 490 years. So understood this way then, the 77s would constitute 10 of those jubilee years with the last seven culminating in an ultimate jubilee. So let me try to summarize that again. Israel enjoyed jubilee every 49th or every 50th year after the 49th year when a new start was given to everyone. And here, the Lord is telling Daniel that their new start would soon begin, but all of verse 24 would be fulfilled in 10 jubilees when the ultimate jubilee would bring a new start via the coming ministry of the Messiah. But then the question comes, well, we have 490 years. Are these literal years? Or do these numbers mean something else? If they are literal, then depending on how you count things, it can be shown that the 490 years take us to the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. But if you see them symbolically, which numbers in apocalyptic literature can often be taken, seven being the number of completion, 10 being the number of perfection, and and 70 having these kinds of meanings as well, then we can see that the 490 period of time here is a perfect period bringing these things to pass. So then we come to verses 25 through 27. This is where he kind of breaks down those 70 weeks. Hang on with me, we're gonna have some good application at the end. We have the first seven weeks. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. This is the first seven weeks that we're referring to here. So there's seven weeks, which is a relatively short period of time compared to what would come after, the 62 weeks. Some translations read there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So keeping these first two weeks kind of together, linked, but yet separate. So here's the point. He says, know and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or there shall be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So the going out of the word, what is that? So it begins then and it culminates in, at the end of the 62 weeks later on. What is the going out of the word? Well, again, that's hard to pinpoint exactly, but there seems to be a lot in the scripture that indicate that this was Cyrus's decree that we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. In fact, if you were to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and read, we know that Cyrus was uh, king of Persia and that he's the one that the Lord raises up and issues a decree for the people to actually go back to the promised land. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verse 22, we read this, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all this people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And then you read Ezra, chapter one, and you begin to see the execution of that. There was a period of time that took place in between. But it's highly likely that this going out of the word was Cyrus's proclamation for the people to go back. So it seems then that the first seven weeks are a relatively short period of time that begins with the decree of Cyrus and that goes until the reconstruction of Jerusalem, followed then by a 62-week period of time. Not literal weeks, but weeks, uh, weeks of years. So, it's a relatively extended period of time. So, this concerns the time then from when Jerusalem is rebuilt and the people are back in the land, but in a troubled time. Let's look at that. Verse 25 again. After the seven weeks, it says, Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. There he says, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but it will be a troubled time. So, this period of time concerns the time from when Jerusalem was rebuilt until ultimately a coming of Messiah. But but notice that it's, the people are back in the land, but it's during a troubled time. In essence, what God is saying is, I'm gonna take my people back to Jerusalem, but it's not going to be easy. In fact, we know through Ezra and Nehemiah, they had to be spurred on, encouraged. And even when you get to the prophet Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, we know clearly that God's people, after they returned, after they rebuilt the temple, after they resumed temple worship, it doesn't take them long to do what? They violate the covenant again. Same old thing. Same old sin. And as a result, they find themselves occupied by a series of occupying forces, the Greeks, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and finally, Rome. But... After the 62 weeks, we read in verse 26, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Or some translations say he shall be cut off, but not for himself. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we pick up there that these 62 weeks, which is a relatively extended period of time from the rebuilding of Jerusalem to during troubled times, to the coming of the Messiah, after which the 62 weeks comes this final week. And it's during this time after the 62 weeks that anointed one comes and is cut off and shall have nothing. Well, who is this anointed one? Let me read Isaiah chapter 53, verse eight to see if this helps. We know that this anointed one in Daniel was cut off by oppression, Isaiah says, in judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? As I can't help but think when you read this text in light of the prophecy of Jeremiah, in light of the prophecy of Isaiah, and when you read about this coming of the anointed one, this coming one who would be cut off. This is indeed what happened in the life and ministry of Jesus the Messiah when he came and he lived and he was cut off. He was crucified for the sins of his people. So it took the work of the anointed one in verse 25 through 27 to accomplish what he promised he would accomplish in verse 24. But then we read about a prince The anointed one comes and is cut off in verse 26. And then the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its or his end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Well, who is this prince that comes and destroys the city and sanctuary? This is where the differing interpretations go a bunch of different ways. Some take this prince to still be the anointed one in verse 26, which is the anointed one of verse 25. And you say, well, how could that be Jesus? Because this one destroys the city and sanctuary. And the people that follow him are the ones that destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, some would argue that this prince is the anointed one because through the crucifixion of Jesus, the temple curtain was torn in two and he did away with temple sacrifices once and for all. And the people of God who followed him were actually the ones that brought about the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 because of their own disobedience and rejection of the Messiah. Some take it that way. And that's a solid possibility. And also because of how Hebrew literature works. What we have here is verses 26 and 27. And oftentimes in Hebrew literature, a point is being made and then immediately restated in a different way for further clarification. And if that's the case, then verse 27 is simply repeating verse 26 in line with a literary style common to Hebrew. Thus, the covenant in this view, in verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant, would be the new covenant that Christ came to deliver, according to Jeremiah chapter 31. So all the way through, some would see that this anointed one, this prince, this one who was cut off, and this one who would make a strong covenant is the same person, meaning the Messiah. I think there's a lot of validity in that argument. But there are others who take the prince and the ones who follow him in verse 27 as Titus, the general of this Roman army that came in AD 70 and brought about the destruction of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That's also a very highly likely possibility when considering all that we have to consider in this text. Others take the prince and the one who makes a strong covenant with many as the Antichrist work prior to the second coming of Jesus. And if that's the case, it requires a significant gap between verses 26 and 27, which I would say textually is a very difficult and hard leap to make in this text. And so I'm not convinced at all that this is any reference to the Antichrist. If it's any reference to anybody bad, it would be Titus in AD 70 when he brought about the destruction of Jerusalem. So I personally believe that all of Daniel 9, 20 through 27 has been in some way accomplished in the ministry and work of Jesus. And the desolation that's being referred to here is the desolation of the temple in AD 70. Now there are elements of Christ's redemption that we know that are still yet to be fulfilled and consummated in the future. I'm not convinced that Daniel is referring to that yet future event, the second coming, which we know will indeed come. However even though there are significant differences in interpretation. The overarching point remains the same. God is saying in his answer to Daniel that he will restore his people. Not only will he restore them back to Jerusalem with physical restoration, but he will provide spiritual restoration as he deals with sin once and for all in the coming work of this anointed one. Which leads me to several takeaways from these passages. There may be some things that are kind of difficult for us to know for sure, but these are some things you can take away that are certain. Number one, God's timetable can always be trusted. While Daniel prayed for the restoration and return of the people of God based upon the promise that he read from Jeremiah, it was going to be a slow process and one that he himself would actually not experience. Very similar to Moses' ministry, right? God wasn't finished after these 70 years were up. And so there would be 77s or these 10 jubilee years that were still to come before full restoration would be complete. So Daniel, yes, he was anticipating this spiritual renewal as well as a relocation, but God's work would far supersede what he thought It would not just be a restored temple and a restored Jerusalem with people actually doing the sacrifice like they were supposed to, according to the old covenant. But what God is saying, you're going back. and It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be in troubled times. But listen, at the end of those troubled times, I'm sending an anointed one. I'm sending the Messiah and he's gonna be cut off and he's going to bring about salvation for all who would trust in him. So God was concerned, yes, about their return to the land, but he was even more concerned about the return of their hearts and the accomplishment of redemption. And I think that's helpful for us who want instant re- results. We live in such an instant age, don't we? Listen, what we're being told here is that God is committed to the full salvation of his people, the full deliverance including your transformation. But that process is a longer process than what most of us like to admit or want to commit to. Lord, save me and make me holy now. So we often want instant change. We want other people instantly changed, right? People in our lives. Lord, would you just change that person now? Make life a whole lot easier. I bet they're thinking the same thing about you, aren't they? Instant fixes, instant transformation, yet God works with eternity in view. So rest assured, he will accomplish our redemption and transformation, but it is a long-term project. So God's timetable can be trusted. Even if we have difficulty understanding the timetable here, his timetable can be trusted. He's working to bring, he's starting and he's completing a redemption for his people. Number two, God's preservation is steady. I think one of the things that we can be encouraged by from this text is that God will get us home. And as his people go, even through exile, God is with them. And Daniel's praying in exile and he's hearing from God. We've seen God's presence with them all the way through this book so far. And then when they return to the land, it would be a time of trouble for them. And it's during this time, by the way, which covers about 400 plus years, even the the 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament when the prophets go silent, that God's people are back in the land, but there's no prophetic witness, there's no major events other than the the regular difficulty the Jewish people endure. But we know that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The people returned, but it wasn't what they thought it would be. And yet what we see, even in that time of silence, even in the unseen and even in the unrecorded, we see the preservation of God's people from God himself. That's evident because in the coming of Christ, it unfolds exactly like he foretold Daniel via the 70 weeks. And so just think about it this way. God's preservation is steady. It was was steady in exile. It would be steady in this return to the land, but in a troubled time, and it will be steady until he comes again. Life is often what the Puritans used to call like uh, God desertions. And they would say that, that what it feels like sometimes is that, that God isn't really with us, but yet He is preserving us, much like the sunshine. A sunny day like today, we see the beautiful sun, don't we? It's a welcome sight. Yesterday and the days before, it, it was cloudy, wasn't it? But the sun hadn't moved. sun hadn't moved. It was, st- it was steady, it was constant. That's very much how God works in our lives. He is steady, he is steadily preserving his people. Even when the clouds come into view and we can't see directly what we want to see and, and understand how we need to understand it, God is preserving his people. But then number three, we can take from this passage that God's salvation is absolutely certain. Daniel learned that an anointed one would come but that he would be cut off. But that cutting off had a redemptive purpose. Sin would be dealt with once and for all and the new covenant that Jeremiah described would be initiated. So Daniel prays for the end of the exile and God takes him to that mountaintop and says, that's coming to an end. But I want you to look far to a distant mountain because that is the mountain of my anointed one who I will send to bring about a perfect redemption once and for all. He will atone for sin and he will bring everlasting righteousness to bear upon my people. So even though there are different interpretations, these truths still emerge. God's people would return as promised. God would fully redeem his people and God's people would be given everlasting hope. Quite an answer to prayer. What we see here basically, friends, is in Christ. We're gonna use Old Testament language. In Christ, the jubilee trumpet has sounded and victory over sin and transgression has been won. And as Daniel looked forward to the day in which they would return to the land, God showed them an even greater promise. that He would send one who would redeem them forever. And I hope as we come to a conclusion of this chapter, that we could be encouraged, that we indeed have this same hope because we can look back. We can look back and say, God indeed has kept his word and he has sent a savior. To him be the glory and the honor and praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this reminder of hope That we have. Lord, it's a complicated passage for us to try to understand. We understand that. Father, the problem is not with your word, the problem is often with our hearts and seeking to discern truths that you revealed long ago. But God, it is clear from this passage that at the end of the day that you are a God who keeps your word. And God, that you are not only a God who keeps your word, that you are a God who works salvation on behalf of your people. Father, we could never save ourselves and we could never rescue ourselves. Lord, this whole, this whole prayer and this whole response is just a reminder of how much we need you. How much we need your mercy. Father, would you just encourage our hearts today and remind us that you are ever faithful to accomplish what you've promised to do. And Lord, we know that based upon the promises of your word, there's still coming a day when we can look forward in anticipation and hope when Christ will come again. And he will gather us to himself and right all wrongs. And we will be with you forever. Father, would you give us hope for that day and encourage us in the journey. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.